So we're going we're gonna to keep going in the book of Revelation. Um, this has been kind of fun as, as we've been working our way through this series. We've got just a few weeks left, um, but, but right now where we find ourselves is this. We are, we are at this moment, right, where, um, well, if you've been tracking along, you've seen this. Way back in Revelation 5, Jesus took uh, the lamb that was slain, Jesus took the scroll from the right hand of the Father. Uh, when he does that, it ushers in this time period we've called the tribulation, right? This, this great tribulation. Daniel talks about it. We, we've read about it. We, we kind of went over that earlier in the series. And as he opens the seals of the scroll, seven seals, each time he opens a seal, God pours a judgment out on the world during these end times. And as he gets to the seventh seal, he opens the seventh seal, and that ushers in the seven trumpet judgments. That are the seven terrors uh, uh, that God pours out on the world at that time. And as, as he gets to the seventh trumpet, we see that there's a great war in heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation. Three and a half years in, there's this great battle in heaven where, where Michael and the armies of God cast Satan and his demons out of heaven forever. And so Satan comes to the earth knowing that his time is short and just seeks to wreak havoc and wrath upon the people of God and his nation Israel. And then we see that, that God pours out his final um, seven judgments, the, the seven bowl judgments, where each bowl is God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And the seventh bowl, when it was poured, we heard the loud cry of the angel in heaven shouting, It is finished. And at that loud cry, human history is about to come to a close. The church age has come to its fruition. Remember what, what we saw in, in Revelation 19. Like, let's see if we can, there it is. Um, what we saw in Revelation 19 uh, was this Avengers Endgame level event. Who's seen Avengers Endgame? I know you have, uh, right? It's awesome. Um, it was worth the wait. It's what we waited for. And so here's what happened. Uh, we had Captain America on this side, and, and you had Thanos on this side. And Thanos had all of his armies of evil people with him. And uh, you had this epic moment that we'd been waiting for for like 11 years uh, with Captain America over here where he utters the words, Avengers assemble, and all of the good guys are ready, and there's this big epic battle. And it looks like that's what we're going to get in Revelation 19. We read about um, that the seventh bowl dries up the great river Euphrates and all the kings of the earth led by the Antichrist and the false prophet and the three evil spirits um, come across to make war on God's people. And then we see with the bowl poured out that the angel in heaven um, says it is finished. Jesus Christ the king returns on his white horse with all of the armies of heaven. And so you see this great standoff. It's this epic scene where they're facing down on one another. You got the Antichrist and all of the kings of the earth in their war machine. And here you have Jesus Christ on his white horse, uh, his robe that's been dipped in blood and the armies of heaven, and they're ready to do great battle. But you know, we don't even hear about the battle. And we said this last week, it's because the battle was over before it began. At, at the beginning, the battle was decided. John has nothing to even record about this battle. All he says is that they're facing off. It's, it's all of the armies of the earth against 
Jesus who's returned with the armies of heaven and they're ready to do battle. And then he doesn't even tell us about it because it's insignificant. It doesn't matter. It's over before it starts. He skips to the end and he says, oh, and the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet. And you know what? They were thrown in alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That's just how it went. You're like, what happened in the battle? Who knows? But I can tell you this. It, it wasn't close. It wasn't touch and go. Nobody on the side of Christ was lost. It was just decided. The armies of the earth were ravaged. And the beast and the false prophet, that's the Antichrist, and the one who led people in worship, worship of him are thrown into the lake of fire. Not only that, but we see Satan. I saw an angel coming down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Now, we'll talk about why he would have to be released for a little while. There's a couple things of note there. One is he doesn't get thrown into the lake of burning fire and sulfur like the Antichrist and the false prophet. But he gets bound in a bottomless pit and chained and, and locked in. For a thousand years and then afterwards he's going to be let out for a little while and that might be confusing and, and we're going to deal with that before we're done today but but what happens next is so epically important that we need to make sure that we spend some time on it first keep going then i saw thrones these are the 24 thrones that we saw earlier in revelation 5 then i saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And, and they all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this first great thing that happens, right, as... as the Antichrist and his false prophet are thrown into the pit. Satan is, is chained and drugged into a bottomless pit and locked in for a thousand years. Then John sees this event, uh, this, this close of the church age, where all of those that have been martyred, and in fact, all of those that have been Christians, all Christians from all time, now stand before God at this resurrection moment. Okay, and, and here it... Honor is specifically given to those that have been martyred during the tribulation. But we know that it's all believers because of what he sees next or what he says next. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until a thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. And this is how we know it's all believers, right? From all time. You and I will be included in this if we are followers of Jesus Christ. For them, the second death holds no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. This is the moment that we're waiting for. This is the moment of hope. This is the resurrection. Right? This is the moment. This is where, I said this in the first service, when, when I am blessed to be able to stand at the grave um, and do a committal service. Now, that sounds weird. I do a lot of funerals, so I don't like, hey, I, I love it when I get to do a funeral. No. But when I do a funeral, I love it when I get to stand at the graveside and say these words. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
So when I can say those words at the graveside of someone who has loved and followed Jesus Christ with their lives, they've given their lives to Jesus, then I can say those words. Death, you have, you have won this round. But the second death will hold no power over this person. Because at this resurrection, they will be made new in Christ. That's just all there is to it. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It doesn't exist. I can't say that at every funeral. But I can say it. I can say it when I stand over the grave of someone who has believed in and followed Jesus Christ with their life. This is that moment. This is that moment where believers will assemble with God and they will be judged, but they won't be judged according to their works. They'll be judged according to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven because they have been paid for by the Lamb of God. And they will be with Christ and they will reign. They will reign with God and they will be priests of Christ for a thousand years. Listen, this is a, this is a big deal. Now, here's, here's what I want you to know about this. This is the truth if you have decided to follow Jesus. This is the truth for Miley. We just saw her baptism where she is publicly letting you know, I have decided to follow Jesus Christ. He has made me new and I am his. She will stand here on this day, right? This future day, at the end of the church age, when, when King Jesus has returned with his armies and, and the Antichrist and all of the war machine of the earth is defeated and, and, and the Antichrist is thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur and Satan is bound in a pit, Miley and everybody else that has decided to follow Jesus will be here because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now here's what I want you to know. There, there will be judgment on that day. And we're going to deal with that because it's something that we don't talk about in the church nearly as much as we should. Christian, you will be judged on that day. But that judgment is not going to determine whether or not you are saved. Because by the grace of God, through the mercy of, of God, through the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross, and you have decided to follow him, when you decide to follow him, your salvation is secure, and you are assured of heaven. Heaven is a certainty when you surrender your life to Jesus. But there will be judgment, right? Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us this, and just as each person is destined to die once, after that comes the judgment. Right? For some, it will be the second judgment. For some, the judgment will be what we know as the Bema Seat judgment. We're going to dig into that a little bit. We, we, we first kind of find out about that a little bit as Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 5. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if not, you can just follow along with me. We're going to look at the first 10 verses that talk about this resurrection and this Bema Seat judgment, which is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying it, is for Christians. And there's something you should know. When I say judgment, at the resurrection, you will be judged. Some of us start to think, uh-oh, wait a minute. I thought I was a follower of Christ. I thought I was going to be okay. You are. If you are a follower of Jesus, heaven is a certainty for you. But there will still be a judgment. The judgment seat of Christ. The Bema Seat judgment. Okay, let me read for you in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know... 
that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. Right? So this, what you're wearing right now, is an earthly body. Paul refers to it as a tent. It's not permanent. A tent in this time, in this culture, was meant to be temporary. It was for nomads and wanderers. And how many times have we said it, Christian? You don't live here. You work here. Right? This is, this is not meant to be your permanent address. Right? We are on mission here. We are missionaries in a foreign field. Even if you have a home address here, this is not your place. Your citizenship is in heaven. Right? And so he says, we have these tents that we use. But in heaven, there is a home being built for us. Talking about our heavenly bodies. We grow weary in our present bodies. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. You will have a physical body at the resurrection. When you are physically resurrected, there's this physical body. Like, how old will you be? I don't know. I assume you'll be however old Adam and Eve were when they were physically resurrected. I don't know how old that was, but, I mean, it was the perfect age. God creates, and he created them, and that's, I'm assuming, what you will be. Your bodies creak and ache? Of course they do. Listen to me. They're not intended to last forever. Right? You're looking for the fountain of youth, some miracle cream to put on your face, something that you can drink every day that will make you strong and healthy? Fine, do it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be as healthy as you possibly can. Pot, kettle, whole thing right there that we could talk about. But I'm not saying that you shouldn't be as healthy as you possibly can. But don't kid yourself. The body that you are in is not intended to last forever. It is a tent. It is not your heavenly dwelling. And so you can try hard to hold on to it tooth and nail. But it's decaying. It just is. Right? And it says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. It's not that we want to die. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying, it's not saying that we are so sick of this life that we should just want to die. Right? Not, not that we should be out there being crazy and reckless and, 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 and with abandon. Right? It's not saying that. But it's acknowledging that this doesn't feel good. And your body is broken. Your spirit is broken. You're, you're, you're emotionally broken. Like all of that happens. Yeah, it happens. Paul told us it was going to happen. Jesus tells us it's going to happen. Because this isn't meant to be permanent. We groan because this is tragically fragile. But listen, Christian, you do it with hope. You do it with hope because there's something better waiting. Right? It's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. We just we want to put on new bodies so that these dying bodies can be swallowed up by life. That thing that's missing can be swallowed up by life. So we're always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we're not home with the Lord. For if we live by belief, not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. Some of us are so afraid of death. Again, I'm not asking you to go look for it. I'm not asking for you to pick up extreme sports. I'm not asking you to go out and lick doorknobs. Don't do that. But I don't want you to be afraid of death. If you are a follower of Jesus, death is not something you should fear. 
Because we know what's next. And what's next is so much better. And then here's how he ends this chunk. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. That is God. For we must all, listen now, listen. We must all, and this is a letter to Christians. He's writing to Christians. As a Christian, this is true. We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this body. And, and we don't think about that enough. We don't talk about that a whole lot because we think as Christians, um, we won't be judged because the blood of Christ will forgive us and we will go straight to heaven. And that's true. As a Christian, the blood of Christ counts for you. Eternity with God is a certainty, but you still will go through judgment. You will still stand before Christ and give account of the good and not great that you have done as a Christian. And we don't talk about this judgment very often because this judgment is a little bit scary for us. This judgment is for believers in Christ and some of us will suffer loss. Not our souls. But if you've spent your life as a Christian building something that's not pure, that'll be exposed. If I, as a pastor, have been up here preaching out of selfish ambition and vain glory for my own glory instead of the glory of God, on that day, that will be exposed. Here's how Paul writes about it in his first letter to the Corinthians. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, this is for you. This is only for those that have a foundation of Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on a foundation of Jesus Christ can do it in any variety of ways. They can build with gold. They could build with silver. They could build with jewels or wood or hay or straw. But whatever they build with, this next thing is true. On the judgment day, that is when Christ is on the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, fire will reveal the kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, great. The builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved. Christian, you will be saved. If you are a follower of Jesus at this Bema Seat judgment, you will be saved. There is no way when you go through the Bema Seat judgment that you will lose your salvation. You are secure in Christ. But if the work is burned up, the builder will be saved but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. And you will suffer loss. So what's this talking about? What, what is it that you're going to be judged on? As a Christian, what will you be judged on? See, too many of us, we, we come to an altar call, we come to this very real moment of coming to Jesus Christ. Sitting in your seats, doing whatever. You say, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. You choose to follow Jesus, you turn your life over to him, but then you know that as you live, you don't really live for Jesus the way that you're supposed to. Like You, you kind of hem and haw a little bit. And, and you're not sold out for Jesus. And, and, and the question at the Bema seat is, okay, Christian... What did you do with your Christianity? As a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. What did you do with the Holy Spirit that was living inside of you? Were you effective? Were you valuable? Did you make a difference for God? Did you impact the kingdom with the way that you lived your life and the things that you did? 
Or did you coast? Ephesians 2.10 says, hey, look, you're God's masterpiece. This is talking to Christians. He made you new in Christ Jesus. That's being born again. He made you new in Christ Jesus, not so that you could go to heaven. That's a great byproduct. That's awesome. But he made you new in Christ Jesus so that you could do the good things that he planned for you to do a long time ago. He has work for you to do. And that work is about glorifying him. It's about making him known. It's about bringing the gospel to people that need to know it. It's about bringing peace and grace to hurting people in the world. He's given you work to do. Those that do it well, the fire, which is a test of purity. What survives the fire will be purified. And it will be good and right. Things that are done in right heart and right motive for the glory of God, for the gospel of Jesus, those things will survive the fire and, and you will be able to present them to Jesus for reward. But everything else will burn up and there'll be great loss. And we don't, we don't really talk about this a whole lot. It's one of the reasons why people think that following Jesus is about a one-time decision and then you just try to be good enough. Following Jesus is about surrendering your life and living it to the glory of God, no matter what it costs you. That's what we sign up for, right? He made us new in Christ Jesus, not so, not so that we could go to heaven. It's a beautiful byproduct, but so that we could do the good things that he planned for us a long time ago, the work of the gospel, okay? This is the beam of seat judgment. Um, and, and, and it matters. And I want to encourage you uh, to be actively involved in ministry. To be actively involved in making Jesus known to the people in your life that don't know him. Being actively involved in doing the work that he has put out for you to do. Because here's what we all want to hear. I know we do. It resonates in our heart and our soul. We want to hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. And those well-done, good and faithful servants will have something to do with what survives the fire. What shows up is pure. And it'll matter. And then, after that resurrection, we, we have to deal with this thing called the Millennial Kingdom. Right? And, and now, when it comes to the Millennial Kingdom, um, we base it on, basically... Six, seven verses in scripture. The only time we're going to hear it, um, we're going to hear about it is in Revelation 20. Because the only time we hear about it, and there's not a lot of information is in Revelation 20, there are a lot of good Christians, good scholars that will tell you, ah, it's not really a literal kingdom. It's figurative. That the millennial kingdom, this thousand year reign of Christ, is meant to signify, hey, Satan is vanquished, and now it's this golden age where satan is no more and christ is on the throne and it's not literal um so here's the deal we argue with that and, and we we're not mad at people that think differently what we argue pretty strongly and the reason we do that is because he very clearly john very clearly bookends this one is there's the chaining of satan in a pit then there's the first resurrection a thousand years go by, then there is the unleashing of Satan from the pit, then there's the second resurrection, right? So we read this as a pretty literal time period that we don't know a ton about. 
There are some things that we can know just because um, we, we understand Scripture logically, the, the, the prophets and the words, and there are some things that just must be true because it's a literal kingdom, right? But here's, here's what it says. We only have these four verses to tell us what will happen at the end. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. Remember, it, during the thousand years, he's chained in a bottomless pit. He will go out and deceive the nations. He will gather them together for a battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. But fire from heaven came down at the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we see this weird thing that happens, right? It is that Satan is chained. A thousand years go by where Christ is sitting, literally sitting physically on the throne with all of the resurrected believers, right? And so we're like, what's going on here? Like, like why are we letting him out? And how is he deceiving all of these people when Christ is literally on the throne? So there's some things that we can understand. Uh, so we're just going to go over these here. Uh, one, we're talking about a literal thousand-year kingdom of Christ on the earth. Christ and his church will reign over the nations. This is, we understand this time period to be the literal fulfillment of all of the promises of the prophecies to Israel. All of the promises about God sitting on the throne, the seed of David, Christ ruling physically on earth. Israel will be the focal point of the entire world at this time. All nations, all people will honor God as king of the world and honor Israel as his chosen people. This is what we read about through the prophecies that point to this future glorious day where Israel will reign. Inhabitants will include not just the glorified saints that have been resurrected, but people that are actually born on the earth during this time. Right? That tells us... Um, couple of things. People will marry and have children during the millennial kingdom. Because of perfect conditions, people will live longer lives. People will outwardly conform to the Lord's righteous rule, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've inwardly surrendered to Jesus. Because not everybody will choose. In fact, the number of people that live through the millennial kingdom that won't choose to follow Jesus with the wholeness of their heart is, according to John, it's numberless, like the sand on the shore. Because when Satan is let out of his pit, he will gather people and deceive people to choose him instead of Jesus. Now to be sure, listen, if you are resurrected, if you are dead and resurrected, you are with Jesus. But those that are born during that time, the people that make up the nations of the world at that time, they'll still have to choose to follow Jesus. Not just outwardly because he's king, but inwardly in their heart. And not all will choose to do so. And when Satan is let out of his pit, he will gather them to himself for a great war. It won't work. As soon as they approach God's people, fire will devour them from heaven and Satan will be thrown in the fiery pit of burning sulfur along with the Antichrist. And that will be the end. The end of the millennial kingdom, the end of human history as we know it. So you might wonder why God does that. Why does he allow that? What's the point? Well, I think God's teaching us something there. One is, by instituting this millennial kingdom where sin will not have its way, he's doing for us what we've been trying to do for thousands of years. 
what we understand by now, I hope, that a political person or system will never do. He's fixing it. We keep waiting for this utopia. We keep thinking that if we vote for the right people or we choose the right policies or we can just convince people to do more good than bad, that we'll somehow usher in this world where bad things don't happen. But we're not getting closer. We're getting further away. We're not getting closer. It's only when King Jesus physically sits on the throne and reigns that will usher in this world where peace will reign, where, where prosperity will happen, where people will have enough and there'll be no hunger and there'll be no drought and there'll be no um, problems. But there's something else that he's teaching us there too. Not just that he's the answer for that, but the other thing he's teaching is this. Everything God has ever said about the human heart is absolutely true. God has been telling us since the beginning that the human heart is wicked and evil. I'm sorry if you don't buy it, but it's in the Bible, and we can't rest on some things in the Bible and ignore other things in the Bible. The human heart is evil and wicked, and no one can possibly know it. So even in a perfect world where Jesus Christ sits on the throne, people will still rebel. Because the reign of law will never change someone's sinful heart. You cannot legislate morality. It's good that we try to do so legally, to try to have um, laws that promote morality, moral living, and those things. But you can't legislate morality. Following laws will never make your heart right. God knew that when he instituted the law in the Old Testament. That it was a stopgap, and it was supposed to point to the thing that could change the human heart. He instituted the law to show people that their hearts were wicked. And then he sent Jesus Christ to fix what was wrong in our hearts. Listen, following a law won't change your heart. Your heart is wicked. Only Jesus can do that. And so that's what he's teaching us in the millennial kingdom. And it seems weird that he would go to such lengths to do that. But he is just teaching us that it's always been about Jesus. As we come to a close here, we finish this last tragic thing after the millennial kingdom. So we've had Satan bound. We had this beam of seat judgment, this glorious resurrection of all believers. We reign for a thousand years with Christ in this perfect world. Some people won't choose to follow him that are born during that time. They'll rebel. That rebellion will be quashed. They'll be destroyed by fire. Then there is a second resurrection. This is the resurrection that's tragic and awful. Here's what I can tell you. I wish this was not in the Bible. I wish I didn't have to preach it. I wish it didn't have to be true for some of the funerals that I've done. I wish it didn't have to be true for some of the people that I love. But again, it's, it's in Scripture, and so we know that it's real, we know that it's true, that there will be a second judgment, and it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, and the books were opened, including the Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the good book. This is the book you want your name in. It means you have given yourself to Jesus and you are born again. But there were other books that were open. And the dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so here's the reality. If you were a follower of Jesus, then guess what? Your name is in 
the Lamb's book of life. You participated in the first resurrection, in the first judgment. This has nothing to do with you. But if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, then this resurrection is about you and the outcome is certain. Anyone whose name is not in the first book will be thrown into the lake of fire. And guys, that's bad. It's not good. You know, the lake of fire was designed for Satan. Hell wasn't made for you. Hell was designed for the enemy of your souls, the enemy of God. Satan is thrown in. Satan isn't ruling in hell. That's this weird dichotomy that somehow we've, we've, we've kind of believed in our world. Satan isn't ruling in hell. Satan is being tormented in hell. Hell was designed as his punishment for rebellion against God. But some of us, because we're not surrendering to Jesus Christ, are going to end up there with him. Because here's the deal. Either your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, or it's written in your own book. And your own book is the book of your deeds. What have you done? And for some people, cultural Christians, they love this idea. Because they don't get it. Because here's what cultural Christianity teaches us. If I believe in God, and I'm a good person, then I will get to go to heaven. Because a good God wouldn't send me to hell. Not me. I'm a good person. Am I perfect? No. But come on, I'm a decent guy. I've never even punched somebody except my brother, and he deserved it. I don't steal things. I don't even cheat on my taxes, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm at least decent to my wife. Like, like, I mean, we have all of these things, and we're like, I'm a good person. And so I hope, because I believe in God, that when he opens my book, he'll say, yeah, that's pretty good. Cool story. You're in. The problem is, if the word of God is true, which we believe that it is, and it's been shown as being true, if the word of God is true, then this is what happens. Your deeds won't matter. Because no matter how good they are, they will never overcome the sin in your life. The, the things that are just wrong. Because what did we learn with the millennial kingdom? Our hearts are wicked and evil. Even when we do good, our hearts are wrong. Adam and Eve were made perfect and their hearts were wrong. Listen, it's what we do. Now think about this, right? We like to think in scales. More good than bad and we get to go to heaven. But the scales are completely wrong. Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Every single person has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. It tells us three chapters later, oh yeah, and, and the payment for that sin is death. The second death. The lake of fire death. Everybody sinned. Everybody is destined for the lake of fire because of our sin. It's only through Christ that we can be made right. And, and that's how human history, this stage of it. And David will talk next week about when God makes all things new. The new heavens and the new earth. I can't wait to get into that. But it's this stage of human history where God fixes it. He just deals with evil once and for all. And some of you are sitting there thinking, how in the world could a good God send people to hell? And if you're thinking, how could a good God send people to hell? I'll tell you two things. One is I want to talk to you about that more. Let's sit down and have a conversation. Because I think when we understand God, we'll be able to answer that question better. But, but I'll give you just two quick things that I want you to know as we close. One, 
God is a respecter of your free will. Your free will has been a priority of God since the garden. That's why Adam and Eve had the choice to rebel. Because God could have stopped their rebellion, but he is so interested in your free will that he has allowed you to choose. And he is not going to respect your freedom of will all through your life only to step in and usurp it at the end. If you, in the freedom of your will, choose to live your life without God now, he is not going to force you to do so at the end. He will give you what you've chosen because he respects your free will. And two is this. A holy God can not be in the presence of sin. Sin must be paid for. And I'll tell you this. He has done his part. He has done every... First service, I said it wrong. I said he's done everything humanly possible. No, he's done everything divinely possible to pay for your sin. John 3.16 tells us, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him does not have to face the second death, which is the fiery lake of burning sulfur, but can choose him and have eternal life and never perish. He loves you that much. He has done everything divinely possible to save you from that moment. And all who are victorious will be clothed in white. How are you victorious? You choose Jesus. And you'll be clothed in white and your name will be written in the book of life. And Jesus will announce before the Father, his angels in heaven, look, they belong to me. That's the promise. If you are victorious, then the second death has nothing for you. I want to encourage you. I mean, I don't know the heart of everybody here, but, but there are some people here who might be going through the motions. Maybe they're saying, yeah, I believe in God, but I've been trusting that just being a good person would get me there. Listen, being a good person is great. But when the book of your life is opened, it will be found that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And there is nothing you can do about that on your own. But God paid for you. And in the freedom of your will, you need to choose to follow him. And you live your life for his glory. That's the invitation that he gives you. He has done everything divinely possible to save you from this moment. To let you be victorious. To write your name in his book. To announce to his Father in heaven and to all of the angels, you belong to me. It's the invitation. I'm going to pray to close us. Um, encourage you, if that's not a decision that you've made, that in, in your heart of hearts, it's time to surrender to Jesus. He, God has done everything to call and woo you to himself. I'm going to encourage you too, to be on mission. Because there are people that you know and love and care about, neighbors, friends, co-workers, people that, that you love, family members, people that you know and care about that have not chosen to follow Jesus, and this is their destiny without intervention, without coming to the cross. And that's the work that God's given you to do. Long ago, you were made new in Jesus Christ to do the work. The work is to bring them to faith. To let it be real. Heavenly Father, God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the grace that you've poured out. We thank you for saving our souls from the second death. It is destined for each of us to die once, but when we are followers of you, we will not face the second death. 
And God, we pray that that will be true for everyone that we know and love and care about, for those in the world. I pray, Father, that I would be on mission to bring a hurting world the hope of Jesus Christ. I pray that those listening would be on the same mission. Father, that we would see your kingdom come in power. Father, I pray for those that are confused about this or that have been trusting in their own goodness. They admit that you're real, but they're trusting in their own goodness to get them there. Father, I pray that their eyes will be opened. I pray that, that instead of focusing on how we might be better than everybody else around us, we'll, we'll acknowledge the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are death, but that you have paid our way so that we don't have to taste it. Father, we love you and we praise you and we just thank you for who you are. Amen.